Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study of God's word, we need to make sure that we are prepared for that study. Scripture uses a number of different terms to describe the preparation for a believer in coming into the presence of God, as it were, in terms of fellowship. In the Old Testament, it often uses pictures of washing and cleansing, often in the <clears throat> idea of the physical removal of, of uh, sin or impurity, but it was to picture a spiritual reality. This is picked up in the New Testament in terms of dealing with our sin, that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it picks up the same idea of cleansing and purification, that though we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant we enter into an eternal, unchangeable uh, relationship with God. We are adopted permanently into his family as members of that royal family, but when we sin, that fellowship with God is broken, though we do not ever lose our salvation. So in order to recover fellowship and to continue our walk with the Holy Spirit, to resume that, we're told that we must uh, be cleansed, we must deal with the sin in our life, and so we always take time before we study God's Word to make sure that uh, the Holy Spirit is... Uh, working within us as we study his word to help us to understand it, to see how it applies in our life. We always take a few moments for a silent prayer, a few moments to make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord, and then I'll open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for your grace, your magnificent, manifold grace in our lives that has provided so much for us. Down through the ages, you have revealed yourself to us progressively from the writings of Moses in the Torah down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament through the writings of the apostles, and that it is through these writings and the scripture that we are sanctified. We learn first and foremost of your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ in providing for us a free salvation. 
And then in the New Testament, we are given uh, that which we need to know in order to live the new spiritual life which we have. Now, fathers, we continue our study on Sunday morning dealing with the book of Revelation and the end time, the end results as we come to understand uh, more fully where we are headed in our destiny and how this affects our present life. We pray that we might be able to focus, concentrate, that the Holy Spirit will help us put together the things that we have learned that are familiar to us with the things that are unfamiliar to us, that we may continue to be edified and strengthened in our soul and our walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying Revelation just to kind of get our orientation back. We have come to the near the end of Revelation chapter 5. There we mention angels again, and I've taken the opportunity to insert sort of a mini-series on angels in the Bible, angels and believers in the Bible, what we call the angelic conflict, what others call spiritual warfare, because this plays such a, such a crucial, critical, central role in what comes to pass in the future during the time we speak of as the tribulation, that time period that's covered between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19. And in the uh, beginning of this series, I spent a good bit of time uh, dealing with the roles of angels and just surveying that in the book of Revelation. So we have looked at how this entire conflict began in eternity past when the creature identified in the Hebrew as Halel ben Shahar in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and identified as the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28, revolted against God. Arrogance in his soul led him to desire to be worshipped as God, to take over the authority of God. The creature thought that he could perform as the creator. And that evil, that act, that one act of mental attitude sin, that desire to usurp the authority of the Creator, led to such a uh, rift among the angels. A third of the angels were enticed to follow uh, Lucifer, or as we also call him Satan in his revolt, that this caused a uh, catastrophe in that uh, early universe. And we get indications of that, but the description of judgment in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the earth was covered in darkness and the, the deep was covered in darkness and the earth was without form and void. These terms uh, resonate with a sense of judgment, a sense of foreboding, a sense of something malevolent that has taken place. And so we have worked our way through this, and now we are looking at how <clears throat> Satan attacks and assaults uh, believers in uh, or throughout history. And I want to begin with a passage I focused on in the past, 1 Peter 5.8. This is a crucial command for every believer for our spiritual life in this church, church age. There we read, be sober, the apostle Peter writes. And that term in the Greek doesn't emphasize uh, lack of uh, alcohol, but it indicates... Stability in our thinking, objectivity, a seriousness, as it were, that comes from the fact that we understand the significance of our own spiritual life and the role that plays, not just in our life, but in history and within this broader angelic conflict. So we are 
uh, encouraged to be uh, diligent, be objective, to be stable in our thinking, to be vigilant, watchful, because uh, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're told, resist him, steadfast in the faith, that is, in the body of doctrine. It is a body of doctrine that we learn and apply that provides a fortification in our souls that protects us and defends us from the onslaughts of the devil. We'll get into that when we get to Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 6. Now, the fact that there is a genuine devil, a not just a, a force of evil in the universe, but a personality that is the... <clears throat> Or source and origin of all evil in the universe is some is frequently scoffed at and frequently uh, ridiculed by modern and postmodern man. In fact, there are many Christians who somehow recognize this in one part of their brain, but in another part of their brain, in terms of how they live their daily life, the reality of Satan, the reality of the angelic conflict, the reality of demonic assaults against the body of Christ is somehow minimized. We need to be careful that we don't go to either of two extremes. One extreme is what is often seen in some churches where the devil is blamed for everything, and you have a, as Flip Wilson said back in the 70s, the devil made me do it uh, mentality. And that is often what is portrayed as spiritual warfare by many televangelists today, sort of a personal one-on-one confrontation with the devil. The other extreme is to minimize his involvement and to act as if that is not not significant. The Bible makes it very clear that the devil goes about, he cruises the earth looking for those that he can attack. Now, he may not attack personally. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not omniscient. The devil is a creature. But he has... Millions and millions of demons at his disposal who are involved in carrying out his stratagems in planet Earth. And we are warned against those many times in the New Testament. But this imagery of the devil prowling around like a roaring lion is not unique to the New Testament, but it is also seen in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the first chapter of Job. I have to excuse me, I'm still fighting off some of the residual effects of the cold I had last week. I got quite a shock when I called him on Saturday morning and he answered the phone. I said, Ike. He knew right then, as soon as he heard my voice, he knew he was in trouble. I told him when uh, we started uh, working together and I started mentoring him that... Um, part of his responsibility would be ready at a moment's notice to uh, get that call because, you know, I'm over 50. I could drop dead of a heart attack at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning in anticipation of getting in the pulpit. And he's got to be always ready. Uh, Some of my uh, pastor friends, and uh, mostly in the black community, do a great job in training their assistants and their associates that they that they develop. And one of the things that they do is they'll have a, a group of maybe three or four that they're working with, and they tell them continuously, you have to have a sermon ready to go. And three or four times a year at 1130 at night, they'll just randomly pick one, call them up, and say, you're on tomorrow morning. So you have to be 
ready. When I was ordained, I was told you have to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. So I gave Ike a little more notice than that. I called him about 11 o'clock on Saturday morning and then again later that afternoon, and my voice was even worse. So he knew that his number was up, but I understand he did a great job last week. So we're in Job, Job chapter 1, and the first verse of Job orients us to what is going to come about. We're told that there was a man in the land of Uz. We don't know where Uz existed exactly. It was somewhere in the Middle East. We know that the, these events in Job seem to fit within the general time frame of the life of Abraham and Isaac. There's no mention of Israel. There's no mention of the Jews, no mention of Abraham in the book of Job. He is a, a Gentile. He is not a Jew, and he lives somewhere in that vicinity. But we're told several times in the first two chapters, what the first verse tells us, that he was blameless. The Hebrew word there is Tom, and it means that he was a man of integrity, and this is the divine viewpoint analysis of his life. He was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. We're told this about four times in the first two chapters to make sure that people understand that Uh, despite the claims of his so-called friends in the next several chapters, that what befell Job in these tremendous disasters, the loss of his children, the loss of his home, the loss of all of his possessions, and eventually the loss of his health, that this had nothing to do with any behavior on Job's part. It was not because God was disciplining him, but that he was being disciplined in another sense, the sense of training that comes with discipline, the sense of providing a a testimony. So we know right away that Job is a man of uh, unusual integrity and spiritual maturity. And then we're told what's going on behind the scenes. We always have to remember that Job doesn't know what we know. It's it's like those shows on television where you have a certain part of the plot taking place and there's things going on behind the scenes that the main actor, the main hero, is completely unaware of. And Job is not aware of what's happening in heaven, but for our edification, the curtains are drawn back so that we can see into the heavenly throne room and understand the spiritual dynamics that lie behind the world of empirical reality. So in verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. See, even as far back as 2,200 B.C., Satan is cruising the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And as he came across Job, he decides that he is going to make an issue out of Job because Job is the... Uh, Bill Gates of his generation, he's the wealthiest man on the planet. He has been blessed materially and physically by God in in, uh, untold ways, but he is a man of great strength, and Satan is going to challenge his integrity and say, well, the only reason that Job worships you is because you've given him all this. Let's take it away and see if he doesn't curse you. Well, that's another story that's beyond what we're looking at this morning. I simply go to this in the introduction to say that there is 
a pattern that extends from the Garden of Eden to Satan's ultimate destruction and confinement in the in the lake of fire where he is consi- consistently targeting the human race in order to assault our spiritual lives and our relationship with God. There are four things that seem to be the aim of Satan in attacking believers, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The first is his goal is to distract us from our spiritual life, our relationship with God, to create some sort of breach in our life. There are things that happen, such as happened to Job, that people often react to, and unlike Job, they curse God and blame God for allowing these kinds of things to happen in their life. And so that creates a breach in their life, and instead of having a rich life of humility and obedience, they give in to anger, resentment, bitterness, and all sorts of mental attitude sins. This leads to the second aim that Satan has, which is to destroy our testimony regarding the grace of God. Every believer from the Old Testament to the New Testament is to live a life that produces a visible testimony to not only God and the angels, but also to the human race. And that as we walk with the Lord, as we go through our life, as we get married, as we go through our marriages, as we raise our children, the ultimate goal for us should be to glorify God in all that we do. Because we are building a body of evidence for the grace of God in our family lives, in our businesses, in everything that we do in life uh, relates to this. And if Satan can get his foot in the door and destroy that, then that evidence that we provide in the scope of this angelic conflict is destroyed and corrupted. Third goal of Satan's is to attempt to destroy God's plan for the church in this present church age as the Lord Jesus Christ is building his body. He seeks to distract us from evangelism, seeks to distract us from spiritual growth and spiritual life, all in relationship to what God is specifically doing in this dispensation. And then fourth, he wants to prevent you from reaching spiritual maturity and having an impact on the world around you. And it's it's always amazes us when we find out that people actually watch us, that our friends, many of you have many friends, you have uh, business associates, you have family members, you have uh, childhood friends that you're still uh, closely associated with that are not believers. And you may have witnessed to them numerous times. You may have witnessed to them uh, many, many times over the years, and they're still watching you. And you don't realize that, but that is part of our visible uh, testimony and part of our impact on the world around us as we grow to spiritual maturity, the decisions that we make within our sphere of influence have an impact. And if Satan can destroy that, then he has gained a tactical victory. He will never gain a strategic victory. He's always been defeated at the cross, and he will be ultimately defeated and uh, punished in the lake of fire. But he is seeking like a child who has been told he can never get what he wants, now he just wants to have a temper tantrum and wreck everything he can. 
even though he will ultimately lose the battle. That's basically Satan's approach to our life. He's trying to destroy and take down whatever he can uh, with him. Now, our focus at this point in our study is on how Satan has had direct assaults in history. There are direct assaults and indirect assaults. And ultimately, our protection, as I pointed out, comes from our mentality. Spiritual warfare doesn't take place between you and the demons, but it takes place between your ears. It is a battle for the mind. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. And we mustn't restrict our understanding of the application of this to just not having mental attitude sins. In other words, thinking right thoughts, as Paul says in Philippians 1, uh, 6 and 7, he talks about how every thought should be characterized by thinking about that which is good, that which is honorable, that which is righteous, that which is just. It's not just thinking in those terms, but it is thinking according to the realities of God's creation. So it involves every dimension of human intellectual activity, how we think about uh, not just the way we relate to people, but how we think about how we use our money, our finances, and even broader in terms of economic policies that would face a nation, per se, uh, let's say. Uh, you think in terms of uh, literature, art, drama, music, every thought, every area of human intellectual activity needs to be brought within a framework of a biblical worldview. And that is a tremendous challenge and that is why it takes generations to develop these things because you have to build slowly and gradually. It takes, uh, when we look at the impact of Christianity on Western civilization from the time of the Reformation to the high water mark at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, we see that it took several centuries to build that impact. And yet it has taken less than a century to tear that down. And so it takes years. It can't be done in one generation because it involves so much. So we come to a chart here I had just scoping out the course of the angelic conflict that the angels were originally created before God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. And then it was during that time before Genesis 1-2 that Satan fell. And then beginning in Genesis 1-3, we have a restoration of the planet. Man is created. And then in Genesis chapter 3, man falls. And then all of this leads eventually to God's solution to man's fall at uh, Calvary. Then we have the church age, which ends with the rapture of the church, and then the period known as the tribulation. This is a time of God's judgment on unbelievers on the earth, as well as a time characterizes the wrath of Satan. This is his last final attempt to destroy all of the Jews on the planet, hoping that they will, if he can destroy them all, and God is unable to fulfill his promises, that Satan will win. 
At the end of the tribulation, he is uh, chained for a thou- in darkness for a thousand years and then released at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. So this gives us just a timeline overall scope. The lake of fire was created initially at the time of the original angelic rebellion. We know from Matthew 25, 41, that the, Jesus referred to the lake of fire has been, has already been, perfect tense, created for the devil and his angels. So they don't go there at that time. So why has that been postponed? And that is part of human histories. We're learning, uh, more about God and his justice, and that's being displayed so that all of human history plays an important role within this conflict. Then I developed this chart. This is what we're studying now, Satan's assaults on the human race. We have direct assaults and indirect assaults. Most of us are, you know, face indirect assaults rather than direct assaults. We have the initial direct assault in Genesis chapter 3 at the, in the Garden of Eden. And a period of time goes by during which time there is another assault, which is the invasion of demons known as the sons of God, and they uh, uh, <coughs> intermarry with uh, daughters of man, with, very, with women, and the result of that is a cataclysmic judgment of the Noahic flood. That is our topic this morning. Then through most of the Old Testament, we do not have direct assaults on the human race as a whole, and the next period comes with the assault, personal direct assault by Satan on the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4, period of increased demon possession during the time of the incarnation, and then, of course, the assault on the cross. We're now living in the present church age when we do not have direct satanic assaults in the same way in which the, we have previously, but during the future tribulation, there will be three demon assaults that we will study in the course of Revelation that are, that they almost sound um, legendary or mythical, that kind of a thing, and I want to address that as we go through our study this morning, why that is not. I think that with science fiction and the development of much science fiction today, people read a lot of science fiction, watch Star Wars, Star Trek, all this stuff, and then they read about some of this in the Bible, and they say, wow, what an imagination. No, the the Bible began this, and all of this mythology, from mythology to science fiction, is merely a distortion of what is actually happening in this angelic realm. Well, at the end of the tribulation, Satan is... Confined, he is chained in darkness for a thousand years, and then he's released, leads a portion of the human race in rebellion against God at the final Gog and Magog revolt, and there will be uh, millions of human beings who have not trusted Christ during the millennial kingdom and will join him in that final rebellion, and God destroys them with fire and brimstone at the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay, let's look at our second assault in history. The first was Genesis 3, which we covered in our last lesson, and this assault focuses on the events in Genesis chapter 6. Now, if, you, if you've never heard this before, if you just come to this and this is the first time you've heard this, this is the first time you've been here, then this may sound like a very bizarre story. It, it sounds like something you would read 
in Greek or Roman mythology. It, it sounds like something you might even read in a in a modern comic book story. I, I often think that that stories like Superman with this person who comes from some planet in outer space and he comes to Earth, he has certain uh, messianic savior overtones to his mission. He has uh, all of these powers and abilities that are far beyond those of mortal man and uh, everything else that we read. All of this comes from an original source. There was a historical event that occurred in human history that is described in the Scripture. And what happens after this is that in the distorted carnal mind of man is that this gets warped and distorted and enters into all kinds of various permutations that show up in in Babylonian mythology and Canaanite mythology, and later it's picked up, borrowed, changed a little bit in Greek mythology and Roman theology. But there's a there's a seed of truth there, and that seed of truth is that within this angelic revolt against God. There were a group of angels that had fallen, fallen angels, that interfere with the human race in a bizarre uh, sexual invasion that's described in Genesis chapter 6. So let's just turn there in our Bibles and take a look at this. Genesis 6, 1, we're told that came about when man be- when men began to multiply on the face of the land or on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. So this sets us up in terms of what was going on uh, at this particular time. Genesis 5 has described the genealogy of the descendants from Adam, from Adam through Seth all the way down to Methuselah and Enoch, the, uh, uh, Enoch and the father of, of Noah. And so this sets up the, the reason for this global catastrophe that occurs and why God wipes out the human race through this global flood in Genesis 6 that's described in Genesis 6 through 9. The corrected translation of this verse would read, and then mankind or the human race began to multiply upon the face of the earth. And the idea here from the from the Hebrew syntax is that this has been going on for some time. It takes us back a little bit into the uh, genealogy of of uh, Adam's and Cain's descendants. Some we don't know how far, but some 500 or maybe a thousand years prior to the flood itself, this invasion began. So as mankind began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, we read that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, this has caused quite a bit of discussion throughout the ages as to exactly what this means. You have some people who say, well, and if you have a study Bible, perhaps the NIV study Bible or the uh, Thomas Nelson study Bible, it may outline these different views for you. But some say, well, the sons of God are the descendants of of Seth, the the godly line, and the daughters of men were the descendants of... uh, of Cain, and so that's the ungodly line. And so, as they were intermarrying, then uh, problems occurred. Why? And my question is, why would God judge the earth with a worldwide flood because unbelievers were marrying believers? 
seems to me we have that same problem today, and God's not threatening to wipe out the planet because unbelievers are marrying, uh, I mean, uh, are marrying believers. So then another view came along that this term sons of God really refers to these ancient despots, and very few people hold that view. It can't really be supported by a lot, but I just want to throw that out so that you're aware that there's a couple of other views. But the, the view that must hold water is a view that deals honestly with the terminology here in terms of how it is used throughout Scripture. And this term sons of God is a Hebrew term that is... B'nai Ha Elohim, and this is a technical term. You either have the article Ha with Elohim or you don't. It's B'nai Elohim or B'nai Ha Elohim. And you find this numerous times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to angels. And it often refers to not just the holy or elect angels, but the angels as a whole, both fallen angels and elect angels. And so uh, some people will say, well, this was talking about angel. Just to make it clear, God would have used the uh, standard word for angels, which is uh, Malaach, and that's what we would find there. But Malaach is reserved for elect angels. There's no example of Malaach ever uh, being used to describe a demon or a fallen angel. So the term sons of God clearly is used to refer to this class of angels that have fallen, and it may include all of the angels, but its emphasis is on the fact that the term sons of God is a term showing their derivation that they were created by God. The term sons of in Hebrew is not necessarily talking about physical generation, but it talks about uh, usually a character quality. And so these would be characterized as godlike because of their powers, their abilities. They were far beyond those of uh, the normal human being. And that is why they're called, uh, they're called sons of God. In extra biblical literature, uh, <clears throat> there are similar expressions used to speak of supernatural beings or the assembly of these beings we find in Ugaritic texts, the Azatawada inscription and the amulet from uh, Arslan Tash, which are some various uh, ancient documents we've discovered, similar type terminology. All of this simply reinforces the idea that this term, sons of God, is a technical term for uh, angels and would include both elect angels and fallen angels. So the terminology is also used in in other passages. Now, the question that many people have is, how in the world is an immaterial spirit being, an angel, going to have sexual intercourse with a human being? And they'll often go to a passage like uh, Matthew 22:30, which is up on the screen, where Jesus has been asked by the Pharisees this sort of set-up question, about if a woman is married to a man and he dies and then she remarries and he dies and she remarries a third time and he dies and goes on down where she has seven husbands and she says, well, whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection? Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. That's why they were called sad, you see. 
So, and Jesus didn't, you know, a- answer the question like I would have. Well, you know, if this woman's had seven husbands that have all died, why don't we call the coroner or call in, uh, you know, the the uh, CSI team and do a little investigation here and see what what's going on because she may be uh, have a black widow syndrome or something like that. But Jesus responds by saying, for in the resurrection, they, that is we, I know this is sad for some of you. Every time I teach this, somebody says, what do you mean? I'm not going to know my wife or my husband in heaven. Well, what Jesus said was in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the indication here is that angels don't marry and procreate and make baby angels. Now, people say, well, see, angels don't marry, so if angels don't marry, how can you say that that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, that these are angels? Well, first of all, the term sons of God always refers to angels, so we have to find compelling reason why that would be different in Genesis chapter 6. Second, I think we have to think a little more precisely about just what's going on here. I mean, you have angels are immaterial beings. That's our, that's our starting point, understanding angels. In fact, when they are pictured and described in Scripture, even Satan and his uh, fallen angels are described as angels of light who uh, are, uh, are engaged in a counterfeit procedure where they want to appear as, uh, as angels of light and ministers of righteousness. So this light imagery is often found with angels, so their bodies seem to be composed of light in some way, and not they're not physical, material beings as we are. And yet, when we go through the scriptures, we see that there is evidence of angels taking on a human, physical, material, human form, where they engage in normal biological activity, and it doesn't seem as if there is a problem. And we go to passages like Genesis chapter 18, when two angels accompanying the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ come to visit Abraham, and the text says they're, they're tired, they lie down and rest, they eat food, they drink, they have their feet washed. If they were immaterial and they're eating food, then that food would just sort of pass right through them. So they, 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 we obviously have precedence in the text for angels being able to, to transform their, their body into a physical material body that has uh, physical properties and biological capabilities. So when the text says that these sons of God took the daughters of men as their wives, we have to say, well, I may not understand all of the physics and biology of how this took place, but the text says that's what took place. So uh, there's evidence around Scripture to support this view, so that must be what was going on, that there is a biological attack on the human race to destroy its purity. Now, why would that happen? Well, we go back to that first assault that we talked about in the last lesson, that the first assault in, in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tempts the woman to eat of the fruit, and she eats first, and then she gives it to Adam, and Adam eats, and then they have fallen, and God shows up, and they run from him and hide and try to uh, solve the problem their own with, on their own with uh, uh, garments of fig leaves, and they come back, and, 
and uh, God addresses them as to what the consequences of this sin is going to be. And in the midst of that, as he's addressing the serpent, he makes that first indication of the gospel. He addresses the serpent and he says, your seed will attack the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. The terminology there of a head wound is a fatal wound. So this is an indication of foreshadowing of how God is going to solve the problem of sin that began in the garden. And it is directly related to this very unusual term, the seed of the woman. Normally we think of the term seed. The Greek translated it in the Septuagint with sperma. We associate that with the male procreative ability, not the female procreative ability. So it's an odd phrase that immediately should grab our attention. And then there is this assault on the seed of the woman. Satan understands that it is through her descendants, the physical, biological descendants, that somehow God is going to uh, rescue, deliver the human race, provide this plan of salvation. So his assault plan is to destroy the seed of the woman, and to prevent this from happening. And so what happens in this assault in Genesis chapter 6 is that there is a physical sexual uh, uh, attack to destroy the purity of the human, human race. Now, let's look at a couple of places elsewhere in Scripture that reinforce this. Uh, <clears throat> I have here on the slide... Just a couple of slides to uh, show corollary passages that talk about sons of God and use that in relation to angels. We have Job 1.6 as well as Job 2.1. Both of these talk about the time when these sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord and Satan is among them. Uh, they're called sons of God again in Job 38.7 related to the imagery of the morning star. So, this has a consistency throughout the Old Testament. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Jude chapter 6, and we find a very unusual passage, not Jude chapter 6, Jude verse 6 and 7, that fits in with a couple of obscure passages in Second Peter and First Peter, and let's just kind of go through these a little bit to see what they say. In Jude, Jude is talking about... God's uh, righteousness and judgment. Let me just turn there a little bit to pick up the context. Jude's that short one-page book right before the beginning of of, uh, uh, Revelation. And so he's talking about this judgment that God is going to bring against false teachers, and he uses illustrations from history, and one is the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the, one is the angels here in verse 6, and then that's going to be followed with a description of the judgment on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. So <clears throat> this is to illustrate the certainty of divine judgment. Jude says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, 
let's just stop a minute before we go forward. What are, let's make some observations here. First of all, he talks about these angels that did not keep their own domain. Now, in relation to both this passage and the, and the passages in Peter, there are people who will come along and say, well, this is talking about the original fall of the uh, demons when they follow Satan in his rebellion. The problem with that is, and that, that makes a good story until you start thinking about it, is if this is describing all of the angels that followed Satan, then they would have been confined and imprisoned, as these passages indicate, long before the Lord Jesus Christ appeared on the earth. So where did those demons come from? You see, you can't have it both ways. This can either refer to all of the demons, which means you can't really have any other demonic activity in history, or it must refer to a subset of the fallen angels, that there is a subgroup of fallen angels that got involved in some kind of uh, <clears throat> mischief, let's say, that, uh, for the, which they're punished severely until their ultimate judgment. Now, they're described as angels who did not keep their own domain. This is the Greek word arche, which indicates their sphere of influence, their power. Uh, it, it's a Greek word that often indicates that which is first in priority or it's their initial position. So the idea they did not keep their own domain, they did not keep their, their initial place is the first thing that is said about them. They did not remain in the initial state in which God had created them. Now, that wouldn't be their initial state as a holy angel, but their initial state as, uh, as a fallen angel. And then we're told that they abandoned their proper abode. They abandoned their proper abode, and actually uh, this has a slightly different... Don't pay attention to the arrows. Apparently when I brought this over from a PC to a Mac, the, things shifted a little bit. Um, <clears throat> they abandoned their proper abode. That's uh, the word that we're looking at here that is... Uh, the Greek word oiketerion, which has the idea of a habitation or dwelling place. So what Jude begins with is the first thing, they didn't keep their initial state, whatever that was, as an angel. And then they abandoned their initial dwelling place, which would be heaven. So, and then the third thing we learn about them is that they're kept in these eternal bonds of darkness for the judgment, so they are bound. But we learn something else about them in the seventh verse, that their sin, that which caused them to be judged and bound in chains of darkness, is that they committed a sin that is compared to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's indicated by that first phrase in Jude, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, see, you've got to watch your feminine and masculine nouns here in the Greek. The cities around them, cities is, plur, is a feminine, so you, it's a feminine plural around them is uh, feminine plural, so that refers to the cities, since they, that is, the cities in the same way as these. Now, it's not a feminine plural here. That these is a masculine plural. Now, angelos, the word for angel, is a masculine plural. So this has to refer back to the angels. It can't refer to the cities. Uh, 
So that's why I've added these little explanations in there, is that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, that is the cities, in, in the same way as these, that is the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So it's, it's saying that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah imitated in kind the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So this is then described as indulging in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And the word there for strange flesh in in the Greek is heteros, meaning a different kind of flesh, a flesh of a different kind. So just as the homosexuals in Sodom and Gomorrah went after a flesh that was not the kind that God had intended, these angels went after a different kind of flesh than that which God had intended. So they indulged in gross immorality and went after, went after strange flesh as exhibited as an, and are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's all describing the sin of these angels. It's not the, the, the undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It's not talking about those in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's talking about these angels in, in Jude 6 that did not keep their initial domain. So who in the world are these angels? They must be those at the time of Noah, but we haven't established that yet. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read a, a similar context and a similar description. There Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, the question there is, again, people say this is the original fall of the angels, but no, that doesn't quite fit because not it can't refer to all the angels uh, being con- uh, chained in pits of darkness. For God did not spare his angels uh, when they sinned, but cast them into uh, Hades into a holding place, um, Tartarus actually in the in the Greek it's not uh, not Hades I misspoke but it is Tartarus and in the ancient world Tartarus was a different compartment from uh, of Hades and it was the place in Greek mythology where the demigods were punished which is a imitation or sort of a it's derived from this this episode in extra biblical literature like the book of Enoch Tartarus is said to be the place of punishment for the fallen angels so this class of angels when they sinned were cast into Tartarus and they were chained in pits of darkness reserved for a future judgment then we come to first uh, first, our Second Peter two five, which links that to the time of Noah. He says, "And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah." And the "and" there links these two events. That there is a connection between this uh, sin of the angels in verse four and the time of Noah. That God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others. So that helps to establish our timeline. Then we go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. There we read, For Christ also died for sins, 
once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the, the context of all three of these passages is on the certainty of divine judgment. But even though there's a certainty of divine judgment in these contexts, there's also the reference to the grace of God. So that's why verse 18 references the grace of God at the cross. And at the time of the cross, when Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, he went and made proclamations to the spirits. That would be angels, another way in which they're described in the Bible is as spirits made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. He's going to proclaim something to them. He's going to proclaim the fact that he has sealed their doom by, the, by his death on the cross. And these, these spirits in prison, we've already seen the group in Second Peter, are those who are described as having once been disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So what we see here is that there is a specific connection between this sin of this group of angels and the time of Noah, and that this sin of this group of angels is defined as a sexual sin in Jude 6 and 7. And so when we go back and connect that to Genesis chapter 6, we realize that this describes what indeed must have been a bizarre episode because there were demons who were able to make themselves material and appear to man and walk the planet in ways that would just seem like something out of science fiction to us. But this is the historical reality and the origin of much mythology. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, in verse 4, we're described the results of that encounter the procreation between the fallen angels and the daughters of men. In verse 4, we're told the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these, that is the Nephilim, were the mighty men of old, men of renown. See, this is what hangs around in residual uh, sort of racial memory among the human race is that and becomes the foundation for these later uh, distortions in mythology as they remember stories about how Zeus comes down from heaven from Mount Olympus and takes a human wife or rapes a human uh, girl and then she gets pregnant and has Hercules who is a uh, mighty man of renown. You have stories like that throughout much of the much of the ancient world, and the truth that lies behind that is what is described there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. So the, verse 5, we're told, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of his thoughts are uh, evil continually. So we see that Satan attacks the seed of the woman. That is his focus. He is trying to prevent the cross. Because it is at the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is true humanity as well as genuine undiminished deity in hypostatic union, goes to the cross and dies for our sins. Because as a true human being, he must be a true human being to die as our substitute, to be there in our place. And as uh, First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 pointed out, 
that he had to be that that substitute, the just as a substitute for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. That is, in terms of his humanity. He had to pay that penalty. He had to be our spiritual substitute on the cross. So that is the last great assault of Satan in the Old Testament. And the next assault that will come in history has to do with the uh, time of Christ when the seed of the woman is in in the flesh incarnate, and we will look at that uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of the fact that we are uh, targets in this massive cosmic warfare and that Satan and his demons constantly seek targets of opportunity to take us out in our spiritual lives. And too often we're unaware of this and the attraction our own sin nature has to the plan and program of Satan, and we become his unwitting dupes. Father, we pray that we would be mindful of the fact that we're to be conscious, we're to be sober, we're to be alert, vigilant, continuously in our spiritual life. This is our priority, that we might live our lives as a testimony to your grace. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never uh, come to an understanding of your grace in their life, a recognition that Jesus Christ died for them on the cross, that you love them individually, personally, so much that you sent your Son to die on the cross for each one of us, that he paid our penalty. And in that way, your love was demonstrated to us, and that simply by trusting in Christ, accepting him as our Savior, we gain eternal life. We are adopted into your family. We receive the imputation of your perfect righteousness so that we are declared just, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of you, who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross as our substitute. And right now, right where you sit, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. At the instant you believe that Jesus died for you, God the Father in his omniscience knows what you're trusting in. He knows what you believe. And at that instant, you were saved, and you have an eternal life that can never be taken from you, an eternal spiritual life that now must be nourished, and it must be fed, and you must grow and mature as a believer by taking in the milk of the Word. Now, Father, we pray that as we go about our lives, we might be mindful of the lesson this morning, that God the Holy Spirit would drive it deep into our souls, and that we might not forget that our primary mission on this earth is to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.